Welcome to Full and Frank, a series of podcasts from Macris Exchange, spanning the worlds of finance, politics, sport, and the media. Welcome to this Full and Frank podcast on behalf of Aquis Exchange. I'm Michael Wilson. I'm joined by my good friend, David Buick. David, very good morning to you. Good morning to you, Michael. And we are very pleased indeed to have Sir Nicholas Soames as our guest on this Full and Frank podcast. I know that, let's get it out of the way. I know that everybody asked you this. They all want to hear about your grandfather. Is it true? You asked him if he was the greatest man in the world and he said, yes, now bugger off. Is that true? Well, I, it is completely true, but I must tell you that I heard about it. I don't remember it, but in Roy Jenkins' biography of my grandfather, he tells the story, and he was told the story by Jock Colville, my grandfather's um, principal private secretary. So I, I think we can safely uh, verify that it was true, and it's certainly a very good answer anyway. I remember Jock Colville well because he worked at Philadelphia Higginson Erlangs when I was a boy. And what a delightful man, very delightful. Before we talk about your life and your distinguished career in Parliament and government, I really wanted to ask you what life was like in Paris when your father, Lord Christopher Sims, was ambassador there, 68 to 72. And then, of course, his career uh, with the European Union between 73 and 77. What was Paris like then? Well, I was a 22-year-old subaltern officer in the 11th Hussars based at Hona in North Germany. And for for me and my siblings, those of us that were the youngest ones, were it was heaven on earth. I mean, uh, I drove, I used to drive from Hona to Paris for the weekend. I mean, you still could, I still had the energy to do. I can hardly get to Tunbridge Wells now, but in those <laughs> days, we had to drive across the whole of Germany and most of France. Um, it was it, it was and remains, uh, to my view, the most one of the most wonderful cities in the world. And it was a very interesting time for my father and mother to be there because my father had lost his seat in Parliament, had been sent by a Labour government to try to unblock the general's veto of Britain's entry into the European common market. Uh, and therefore, it, there was a lot of high politics going on. And it, I took, I used to quite often, my parents were very hospitable, used to allow me to bring some of my brother officers down. And I remember my father spent a lot of time explaining to all of us what was going on, what was really happening. And it was a great enterprise they were engaged in. And um, and it proved luckily it proved at the time to be very successful. Um, So it was a fascinating city, the most wonderful of all the British embassies, I think, all over the world. It was Pauline Borghese's palace um, came to the British government after Waterloo uh, and has been the British ambassador's residence ever since. And it is the most wonderful place to entertain people as a great centre for British excellence in every way. And so we were very privileged to take a, take a very, very small part. My siblings were two of them. My sister, Emma, was uh, was at the Sciences Po, the, the University of Sciences Politique. And my younger brother um, came over for the holidays. And my youngest brother and sister were educated in France at primary school in Paris. The reason I read the thing is I'm fascinated by this, because having read a book about Duff and Lady Diana Cooper, oh, yes. having established the the British Embassy in Paris as the place to be. Yeah. And I think, and I, and I would like to think, that apart from New York, Paris is it, isn't it? I mean, as regards the diplomatic life, uh, and that's where uh, the UK has had most of its success 
uh, in terms of developing its relationship with Europe. Is that right? Well, I think it is right. But of course, it's always been uh, and you can see it now in the in the terrible row over the uh, Australian UK, the submarine um, deal recently announced and the French, in my view, uh, terrible overreaction, foolish overreaction to it. I mean, we have a very, very strong relationship with France. On the military and intelligence side, we couldn't be any, it would be impossible to be any closer, really. And and it's interesting that, I don't know if you've noticed, but the French withdrew their ambassador from Washington and from Australia, but they didn't withdraw their ambassador for, to London. And there is a reason for that. It isn't to show that they consider us to be the uh, the fifth wheel on the bicycle. It's because <laughs> we have so much other business to do with them on the military side that it would be a really foolish thing to do. I think my father's ambassadorship, like you say, Duff Cooper's ambassador, the, the French adored Duff and Lady Diana Cooper. They were wonderful representatives of this country. And I think through all that time, although there have been the great ups and downs, the relationship between Britain and France is much, much better than it would be given credit for in the Sun newspaper. Well, I can understand that. But I just want to develop a variation on the theme because pushing on from there, your father, I think, played a really important role, as you say, in developing a better understanding of what Europe required from the UK and what the UK required from Europe. Obviously, from that springboard, things improved with General de Gaulle and moving on, pressing on from there. That must be probably the greatest influence on why you became such a knowledgeable European, and if I may say so, so very disappointed about what happened in 2016. Is that right? Well, it's... It, David, that's very kind of you to say that, but of course it, it is most definitely right. I mean, I, I, my father and mother, particularly my mother, had been imbued in the European concept. Really, for, for, they both spoke very good French. They both had knew France very well before they yeah. got there. And my father was absolutely dedicated to trying to resolve this terrible conundrum for Britain. When I was serving, I was, you know, I was very young. I was. Uh, commissioned into the British Army, stationed in northern Germany. You know, the concept of the wider Europe and the European Union and the concept of the, the, the of, of peace within NATO as well as the European Union was something we all grew up with. The point is, it's in the interest of this country now for people to look forward and not back. And we now have to make it work. We really do have to make it work. There's a question of, I think, the argument about having a second referendum, you know, it's it's absolutely absurd. It's like we used to say of the other European countries, they didn't get the answer they wanted. They just they just had another election and got the answer they did when they went on. We don't do that. We accept the majority view of the British people. And so whilst I'm very disappointed in it, I am absolutely determined to do what I can to try to help to make it work. And I think also to, if ever I was able to do so, to play a, a, a role in trying to make people understand that the sort of view of Britain as a sort of, you know, we're not in the European Union, therefore we're cut off from the world, really is preposterous. D David and I um, are fascinated. We're just, I just because I just want to take you back back to the the, the Royal Hussars, if I, if I may. Yeah. Um, you, you, part of that time was spent as equity to the equity to the Prince of Wales. Um, is is this where you got fascinated by? I, I don't really know how to put this. Strategic global defence, I think, is is the, the best I can get to. Is, is that where it came from? Well, uh, I was very lucky to be um, acquired to Prince of Wales. Um, I really was, and I learned an enormous amount 
and met the most fabulous and interesting people all over the world. I accompanied on two world tours. Um, and uh, of course, you learn a lot. Actually, my greater interest in the sort of geographical politics was really because when I was uh, a soldier myself, there was a lot. It was the middle of the Cold War. There was an awful lot of talk about arms control. And actually, when I left the army and I finished working for the Prince of Wales, I went to work in the Senate in Washington. And I worked for an American senator called Mark Hatfield, who was a Republican senator from Oregon. And he and Sam Nunn, who was the great Democrat senator from Atlanta, were the great experts in arms control at that time in the Cold War. And obviously, the way that the, the world looked at the time of the Cold War was so extraordinary. We couldn't hardly believe it looking back on it now. Uh, and my interest really was already aroused as a soldier and then working for His Royal Highness. But really, I learned an enormous amount from these two wonderful American senators, both of them wonderful men. And, and I know David wants to bring in, he's, he's, he's mentioned um, Senator Mark Hatfield in, 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 his, in his previous uh, conversation with me. And um, Jimmy Goldsmith as well, tie him into all this because well, he was a great, great he, he, I, I love Jimmy. Uh, he was... Um, I, I left the army, um, I, I went to work in Washington, I came back and I went to work for Lawrence Keenan Gardner, the wonderful stockbroker number one, oh, yes. uh, where the contract notes were signed by Jack Lawrence in person every day. And um, I was a blue button on the stock exchange and got the piss taken out of me royally. And um, I, I, I then I became very conscious of Jimmy Goldsmith's, I followed him in the market. And I wrote to him and asked him if there was a place in his business, even in his private office, just I'd love to come and work for him to, to, to see, to learn. And he immediately wrote back. He immediately wrote back. I said, yes, do it. By all means, come. It will start in two weeks time. And so I went off and I worked for Jimmy for two and a half years. And it was a roller coaster ride. Um, I loved him as a person. He was a brilliant, most brilliant, the most courageous but he was also, he was a pirate, Jimmy. He was a pirate. And I mean that in a good sense of the word. He was a real doer. But he had one, many great qualities. One of them was that he had about three or four people whose advice he would never go against. And if they said no, Jimmy didn't do it. And they had to say quite a loud no, because if he wanted to do something, he was by and large, used to just get on and do it. But if they said no, he didn't do it. And I learned a huge amount from Jimmy. Um, in those days, his views on Europe were not what they were when, when uh, towards the end of his life. And I'm um, sadly, and very sadly, I sort of, I never fell out with Jimmy because he was such a friend. But, you know, he and I held totally opposing views, which he considered to me, mine to be completely hopeless and wet. Uh, and I thought that he'd gone too far. So, but, you know, J Jimmy Goldsmith, what Jimmy Goldsmith did whether you agree or disagree with him, was a remarkable achievement. I can't remember which election it was, but he jolly nearly swung the whole thing. I know, I think it was the, the, the John Major one, wasn't it, 1992? I mean, the, that was the referendum party. I mean, am I right? Yeah, it was the beginning of the referendum party. Yeah, but right, he was starting to get pretty ill then as well, wasn't he? Yes, I mean, well, he was ill in the middle of it. And, and one of the, you know, Jimmy was brave and courageous beyond words, and he he had a horrible, horrible time. Um, but I remember him as being just absolutely enthralled in his presence. His, he had tremendous presence 
as a person. And uh, he radiated this tremendous confidence and knowledge. Um, I, I think I learned ideas well above my station in life. Um, and unfortunately, was never able to do what he did, which is what I would like to have done. He also had some very interesting friends, didn't he? Well, from every walk of life. From... No, he did. Racing drivers, um, card players. God, yes, absolutely. Wonderful American businessman. Um, he, and of course, he very well connected Jimmy. Jimmy. Jimmy was a Rothschild by marriage. You know, he was very well linked in. His mother, I think, was a Rothschild first cousin. Yeah. And he was very sort of linked into the French establishment. People were nervous of Jimmy, and you know they they because he was such a he was he was the he was a real triumphant human being in my view. And people are always nervous of very big people. You you so, so you you took an enormous fount of knowledge into politics. Was it inevitable that you would you you would move into politics? Did you feel as though you, you were actually going to do something? Well, Michael, nothing, as you know, nothing is really inevitable in life. But uh, as you know, David, you were asking about um, how I became interested in it. You know, you kind of absorb it by osmosis. And I remember from the age of eight or nine, you know, the, our houses, wherever we were, was always they were always full of politicians. The talk around my parents' dining room table was a lot on politics. A lot of my friends came to. My parents were very hospitable to our friends, and, and a lot of them became interested in politics. And I suppose it was sort of inevitable. Um, I wasn't, you know, I had a wonderful time in the army. I can't pretend I was going to be a field marshal. Um, I had a wonderful time uh, in business, and, and uh, I enjoyed myself and learned a great deal. And I thought this was a good moment. I thought I had some experience of life, and that it was a good moment to, to try to get a parliamentary seat. But I have to say, I think it's a great mistake, um, and I hope it's not a mistake I made, but it's a great mistake to go into Parliament when you have very little experience of, that, of the outside world. Because, you know, we represent each one of us, we represent 80,000 people, 75, 80,000 people, all of whom, practically all of whom, are much more experienced in life than you are. So it's good to be able to look them in the eye and know what they're talking about. I don't think there's any reason. I mean, 34 years, gosh, only two constituencies uh, held in the highest possible regard. And I think the most poignant comment you made is this business that you did come, you know, with a wealth of experience from various walks of life, which I think, you know, stood you in extremely good stead. Um, and I think basically uh, Parliament has changed an awful lot. Uh, in the last 40 years. And one thing I, I wanted to put to you, because I know government needs an awful lot of support, but the political systems we have it today, 650 seats, seems very big to me. Do you think it's the right way? Do you think that needs any kind of um, radical no, no. changes? I, I absolutely 100% do. And I, I'm not just saying that because I've gone. I mean, I, of no. course it needs change. There are many too many seats. And they tend to be concentrated in metropolitan areas. And I understand that there is a boundary change, a very major boundary change coming up uh, in this parliament, which addresses some of that. But there are too many members of parliament. I think, you, I think if I remember correctly, I think it, the number recommended was about 600 as opposed to 650. So you get rid of... of I, I fought a seat in Glasgow in 1979, uh, um, the seat with the biggest communist vote in Britain, Glasgow Clyde Bank. Um, and I, Cutting your I, teeth on a branding iron, as they indeed, say. Indeed, I, I, I <laughs> learned to eat um, deep fried Mars bars washed down with iron brew. That was my dinner. Um, 
but but I, I I mean you know you looked at the city of Glasgow and it had at least four or five too many seats. Manchester, Liverpool, they all had too many seats because the centres of these big cities were being depopulated. Yeah. Um. And, and I think it's, it's it's absurd. You do need to have a proper balance, um, a proper balance of numbers in constituencies, and not make it. You know, it would just make Parliament. I don't think make Parliament any less or any more efficient. No. But it would make the task of governing much easier. It seems to me, and again, my lack of experience probably shows, but it, the world is a very, very much more complicated place than it than, than it used to be. I mean, not I'm not talking about the Second World War, I'm talking about the Cold War, when it was pretty clear what was actually happening, and um, the you know the, the the various powers knew how far almost they could go. I'm thinking about the Bay of Pigs and so now. I, 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 I'm mystified by, by what's happening. I don't know whether one should be embracing China um, or just leaving it because it's clear there's an Easternization going on. Russia, I know, needs us much more than we actually need them, and so on. All these, all these, all these things. What, 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 what's your, what's your take on? Well, I, 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 this is going to be a boring answer to a really important question. Um, during the Cold War, uh, when the Cold War came to an end. All those countries who were members of Eastern Europe, of the East of the Soviet bloc, all of them, with very few exceptions, joined the European Union and almost most of them joined NATO, which I had spent uh, seven years of my life um, assuming that I was going to fight the Czechs, the Romanians, all of them. They all joined the European Union and most of them joined the European Union and nearly all of them joined NATO. Europe played a major role in creating the prosperity and the space. NATO secured the peace uh, and it created a, a peaceful world. Now we move on uh, and then we all knew what we were doing. We knew who the enemy was. We knew what we knew what his kit was. We knew what he'd do and we were trained to counter him. Now, nobody knows who the enemy is or, as you say, which one it could be. They don't deal in vast numbers of troops. We, you know, I was part of the 7th Armoured Brigade in Germany which had four regiments of heavy armour. That's an enormous amount of kit. Um, that kit is simply not necessary today in that quantity. So we, we've, we, we are involved in this asymmetric warfare where, for example, the Russians call them the little green men. They can go into a country and they literally take down a country from inside without a uniformed man being there. So it is a very complicated you start from that bedrock. As to the Russia-China question, well, the answer, I mean, there is there is no good answer. Uh, Russia, I believe, is a, you know, Russia is a great country and it's set on poking the West in the eye at every possible opportunity that it has. But as David and you probably know much better than I do, I mean, its economy is, someone said, it's, Sur it's Surrey County Council with nuclear bombs. You know, it's got no economy. It's very, very bad off, it's very badly run, it's deeply corrupt, um, uh, and it's a very, still a very brutal country. But they are not going to, in my view, touch wood, they're not going to go, they, they're not going to go to war, they're just going to be a nuisance. And I, I, my line, whenever I had any dealings with, with the Russians, was, look, we, we, of course we want to do business with you, of course we want to do, um, be, you to be part of the great comedy of nations, but if you're going to, you've got to behave as a reliable sensible good member of the of the global system that means you don't go around poisoning people in Salisbury amongst other things so the Chinese a very difficult country this is the greatest commercial power on earth or very soon will be 
it's deeply, my view, deeply misunderstood, but its behavior is quite unacceptable. Um, and, 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 you know, if you watch this Belt and Road process all over the world, I don't believe personally, um, there'll be a lot of booing from the audience, I don't believe personally outside Taiwan, and I'm afraid, you know, um, the Hong Kong situation is very complicated, but that China has territorial ambitions to, to, uh, to, to invade and hold and claim. Her ambitions are to use her influence and her power to buy her way into all these countries. I mean, every country in Africa, literally, mm. China has an enormous. Why is she doing it? Because she wants the rare earth. She wants the natural resources. Yeah. She wants it. And she's getting them. And it's only now, I mean, and, and, and President Trump, who I, I, I just think President Trump was such a appalling man. But one thing he got right was to that the Chinese were a real threat. Uh, and I think it's interesting that President Biden is actually adopting very much the well, it just followed on with the Trump tactic to try to get China to understand that we do want to do business, that we do want to do all this stuff, but we've got to do it on the terms of the global powers. I've been looking at this 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 thing, this this property company, which you probably will know about Evergrande, you know, and then it, it, there's an extraordinary statistic. It is in such bad shape. It has so many empty properties that you could actually fit the population of a small European country into their empty properties. Now, that, that sounds to me like a country which is playing at capitalism and not getting it right. That's 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 my constant feeling about China. Sure, we can trade with it. Sure, we can put our arms out and say, you know, if you want a place at the high table, you've got to behave in it like yeah. X and Z and so. But there, there's something really, really difficultly wrong about that place. Somewhere. Well, I think there is something very wrong about about um, Evergrande indeed. And and um, there are those who think this is one of the worst moments the Chinese system has gone through. And one thing it has done is it made the Chinese central organization realize that this property spivery that's been going on in China for years now has got to come to an end because the end result is a balloon that's going to burst. But it is it shows that the property completely unbalanced the Chinese market. Don't let's pretend that that's the only problem. I mean, I really think we need to be very, very aware of China, of its of the implications of great Chinese power used in a totally unprincipled way. And we need to be very, very firm, but very firm with them. And I think the world has woken up to that in a big way. So, but above all else, I think that China, uh, correct me, Mr. Nicholas, if I'm wrong, they are pragmatic yeah. and need to be very pragmatic. And one thing that's always irritated me, which makes Michael and I smile all the time, is that they are extremely economical with the truth when it comes to financial data that they put out. And so we don't really quite know what to believe. But the Chinese have always had a way of covering up an indiscretion, which looks like they've done with Evergrande, however they've done it, I don't know, but it has calmed things down. But I'd like to go back to Russia for just for a moment, if I may. Am I being completely unfair? But I, I spoke to a couple of fairly senior military people a couple of years ago, and they told me that they were very, very cross with President Obama for refusing to engage with Putin because of his dislike. And instead of trying to, you know, ha have some kind of a relationship, we've sort of handed the initiative to Russia unnecessarily so. Um, so David I'm I'm not sure that I I mean I don't think President Obama's Russian excursions were very successful I mean I don't think he he didn't handle it well I I agree with that but you know 
Russia is entitled, and in my view, it's in our interest to have a straighter relationship, a more consistent relationship, and as you say of the Chinese, a more pragmatic relationship. Militarily, it's very, very difficult. You know, it really is very difficult. They behave incredibly badly after the Crimea, you know, yeah. after the skirt, the the Skripal poisonings in Salisbury, yeah. the the Novichoks, all the rest. Of it. These these are not people who, you know, they may say they want to be do business and 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 um, and, and have a reformed relationship and then do things like this. We can't do business with people on that basis. So I I think the military. I mean, they. I mean, it, we should always have, and we do always have, a line open to the Soviets, and certainly the military have a line open. Uh, uh, and it's important that we do try to bring it back to a more normal position. But while they behave as they do, and when they behave as they do, it's very difficult to take seriously their view that they want to do anything other than poke everyone in the eye with a large stick. On a personal basis, I, I'd just like to say I couldn't be more pleased that you're back in the city with Pamela Gordon, which is, of course, is Thank a you, very, very warm thing for me. I, I just love the company and I'm just so pleased that it's recovered well. And your professional views, um, the city, I think, has done damn well in the last six months. I really, in fact, the last year, and we really are seeing some business coming through. Are you excited about the prospects for the country in the next couple of years? Yeah, I, I am. I, I think particularly, you know, I think that the city of London, uh, is remains the greatest, in my view, the greatest financial centre in the world. And people say, well, it's not, well, it's others. But well, if it's not, it's very nearly it. There's nothing you can't do. It has the greatest reservoir of knowledge and skill, of banking, commerce, all sorts, the law, everything. And for that alone, I think the city is extremely well placed. And I think, in, I, you know, Pamela Gordon loved you, David. That's where I first actually met you at lunch. At it was, yeah. The defence minister, I think. Um, uh, you know, there's room for all these really exciting businesses that are doing very, very well at the moment. They are doing very well. Uh, I think the city still represents the most extraordinary career. Uh, you, it's entirely meritocratic now, which is much the best way that it should be. Um, and I think its opportunities are bottomless. But it has to be allowed to get on with doing what it did so well, which is inventing new products, selling new products. Um, you know, having a huge supply of capital markets and being able to get on do its stuff all over the world. And so I think that, you know, there's a lot of mine, the roadblocks that the European Union in particular, I have to say this, have been extremely unhelpful um, with with the, um, with the regulation. With the regulation. And I think that, that the city now has a chance to make write its own book. Um, and it's doing so very well, in my view. And I, I think it's very I was I never thought and I'm not being wise of them. I never thought that Brexit would lead to a mass emigration from the city. I don't believe that. I mean, I think that, that it's such an enormously successful thing that you, the city has always worked around these difficulties and it always will. And I'm very pleased to see um, that it's still as successful it was. I remember my father was very wise about these things, said you, you needn't worry about the city of London. It's got um, it's got English is its best language in a perfect time zone and above all else you'll never get senior bankers leaving london until they have an annabelle's in frankfurt it's <laughs> <laughs> well, a very good analogy because it's it is a very a good analogy, analogy. <laughs> who the I hell would that. want to go and work there you know <laughs>
Um, well, Michael, thank you for saying that. It's been a real pleasure for me, honestly. It's thank lovely. You. It's, uh, um, I'm, I'm, my answers, I think, you know, sound desperately incoherent. No, they're not. They're one we, all know, we all know what we're talking about. Um, one last thing, question is, any regrets at all that perhaps you might have gone to the House of Lords to carry on your political career, well, or are you really happy the to The truth, David, is that I wasn't offered a place in the House of Lords. You will, you will be. No, to be perfectly fair to the Prime Minister, and I, I have my quarrels with Boris, but you can't uh, you can't offer a place um, after the sort of thing. That, I mean, first of all, he is perfectly entitled to get rid of me. Uh, I did not. I refused with 21 others, very good comrades in arms, to vote for the for the bill. We refused to vote for it. So he was perfectly within his rights to get rid of us. And there are other people that he needed to put in the House of Lords who'd done, who supported him through thick and thin. So I have no, honestly, I have no. No, I know uh, you have. But I, I mean, would be very pleased if if it were to come my way, but I certainly shan't die of want of it. The greatest privilege of my life has been able to leave Parliament after 36 years, to go back to the city, to work for Pamia Gordon. I worked for a couple of reinsurance businesses. I, I'm on the International Advisory Board of a big private security business. I mean, I have made a new life for myself, and I'm I'm very, very lucky man indeed. I, I, I regret it in that I still have some things I'd like to say, but maybe the Prime Minister would rather not hear them. <laughs> no, I just, you will get the call, because if Ken Clark gets the call, uh, you in your own way made just as great a contribution to the House of Commons, maybe not in government, and you deserve it. And on that note, thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you, David, very much. Thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for having me. I'm very flattered.